0: Well, good morning, City Light Church. If you're new here, my name is Mo, and I'm one of the pastors here, and today's a big day. Like Austin just said, we're celebrating baptisms, right? We're celebrating the reality that Jesus is saving people, and then we get to see it on display uh, through the method of baptism. And so, Jesus, man, this morning, he is going to have all the glory and all the praise uh, for the stories and the amazing things that he's doing, and I just want to tell you, church, he's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's going to do even more beyond anything we could ever imagine. Uh, But first, before we do that, uh, let's look at our our Bibles for a moment, just to prepare our hearts uh, for this time and for this celebration. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in the second half of that book. And as you're making your way there, let me ask you something. So, so when you think about the loss being reached, when you think about people hearing and responding to the gospel, when you think about missions or evangelism, which is sharing the gospel with people, what's the most compelling component of all of that? What's, what's the most impactful component of that for you? Is it the, the message itself, like the gospel being articulated uh, just right for someone to respond to? Uh, is it th- that moment when it just like clicks for somebody where it just started to, to clear the haze from their eyes like, it, it, when you imagine that, what, what's the thing that has the most impact? Well, if you ask me, it's the change and transform life. It's the life that you see on display that went from here to there, that you see gone from death to life. And, and it's the one that says, I used to be this, but now I've been made new in Christ. That's, that's the thing that the witness of the changed life is the thing that has the impact on me. And so after today, we're going to see lots of people, three people specifically, go through the process of baptism, and they're going to share their story, but the the beauty of that is the fact that there's someone who passed from death to life. Someone's life has been changed for all of eternity. But let's first start by looking at someone else's story in Luke, where Jesus uses them as evidence Uh, ...of a changed life, of his power to show a religious Pharisee the truth of the gospel... ...and also to proclaim that to his guests as well. And so when we pick it up in verse 36 of our text... ...what we find ourselves is is Jesus being invited to a dinner party, right? So he gets invited by a Pharisee to this dinner party... ...and when he gets invited, it's just after Jesus had basically rebuked all of the Pharisees... ...about not caring for the marginalized and the disenfranchised in their communities. And so it's kind of a weird invitation anyway but he was invited nonetheless, which was a big deal to go to a Pharisee house. So the Pharisees at this time were, were basically, they were really popular and they were basically the pastors of the Jewish community. And so to be invited for dinner to this particular kind of dinner party was a big deal. It was an open air public dinner. So when they were reclining at the table, people were walking by, kind of glaring, like, oh, I see Jesus in there. I see Simon in there. They were just kind of watching. They were It was on display for all to see. And so as Jesus is sitting at the dinner table, he's reclining back, the text says that a woman of the city walks in uninvited. Now, the reason why it said woman of the city, it says that she was a woman of the city and a sinner, basically saying she's not just any woman, but she's a prostitute. She's a prostitute going into this party, which would have been at that time frowned upon because she was considered to be less than anyway. In fact, it would have been more than frowned upon. It would have been outrageous. Like people, would, it would have been a spectacle that would have been made overseeing this woman come in. And the, the truth is, she knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing by walking into this thing. And she, she knew that she would be making a scene. And she did just that. She, she made a scene. Look at verse 38. It says, And standing behind him, being Jesus, at his feet... Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So get this. She's kneeling at Jesus, weeping, crying her heart out, and then begins to, to wipe his feet with her hair and her tears and then spills out perfume on his feet. Catch this. They didn't have closed-toed shoes, so they weren't walking around with J's on their feet. They actually had sandals, like open-toed shoes consistently. So they're walking around all day long. They're not in cars. They're stepping on dirty, dusty ground the entire day. And then they're sitting down at dinner right now. So if you imagine, their feet were pretty nasty, right? Like I would say nasty, like just gross. Like if she's getting down on her knees washing Jesus' feet, she thought it was proper to do so, to clean the feet of the Savior And she didn't use just any perfume either, by the way. This was an expensive bottle of perfume that was only meant to just drip out and use in small quantities. But the text would lead us to believe that she actually broke it and spilled it all over Jesus' dirty feet. She spilled it all over his feet. And the woman is showing Jesus this great deal of affection in this moment. She's showing a great deal of love for Jesus. And most likely... She's weeping these tears, that pouring her heart out because she understands the depth of her sin. She understands just the distance between her and God when it comes to a holy God and her sinfulness. And so she's weeping her eyes out, but then she's also responding and coming to the Savior because she knows that she's going to be accepted. She realizes that in her depths of her sin, the place to go is to a Savior, Jesus Christ, who would accept her. And so that's what you're seeing going on. This is a, a public expression of her deep understanding of her sin and her deep understanding of her acceptance found in Jesus. And man, did she recognize her sin. And she's not the only one that recognized her sin. If you look at verse 39, uh, you see that the, Pharaoh, the Pharisee that, w- that they were there with, Simon, it says, now when, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, this Pharisee's primary concern is not whether or not Jesus would accept him. His primary concern isn't over his own sin. No, his primary concern is how far off this woman should be from them because of how sinful she is. His primary concern is like, Jesus, are you really who you say you are if you don't know how sinful this woman, and you would let her approach you? But he doesn't recognize his own sin. He doesn't recognize his own need for acceptance for Jesus. And so when we're looking at the Samaritan or this woman and we're looking at this Pharisee, we have to ask ourselves a question, though. Are you more prone to see your own sin or the sin of somebody else? Are you more prone to see your filth, your darkness, your mess, or someone else's? You see, the Pharisee was caught up, so caught up, And like his good works and being a good person and his good behavior and following all the rules that he couldn't even see his need for acceptance by Jesus and he definitely couldn't see his own sin very well. Rather, he sees the shortcomings of others and tries to create a distance between him and them. The woman in our story was touching Jesus' dirty feet and the Pharisee said, man, she shouldn't even be doing that. The least, the most menial of all tasks, she was so sinful that he thought she didn't even deserve to touch Jesus' dirty, nasty feet. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, it's not just this intellectual act or or a switch that happens. It's not just this affiliation that we have. No, it's a shameless, I don't care what anybody thinks affection that should draw up in our hearts for Jesus. That's what that is. That's what faith in Jesus should look like. And so a litmus test to to see if you truly recognize the depths of your sin is to look at how you look at other people's sin and how you respond to their sin. So do you, like the Pharisee, look down on them in disgust when you see their sin. Do you start to put these restrictions on them of they're deserving of this or they're not deserving of that when you see their sin? And if so, I would say that you truly aren't recognizing your own sin. I'm not saying that you ignore people's sin, by the way. Uh, What I'm not saying is that you should, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to people and warn them about the dangers of their sin. I'm not saying that you shouldn't proclaim the gospel of Jesus at the sinful situation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get on your knees and beg Jesus to help them in their sin. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't walk with them in the midst of that. But what I am saying is that we can't look down on them or even primarily identify them with their sin. There's no space for it. And so to not recognize your own sin isn't merely uh, failing at seeing that you have sinned. It is also not seeing the depth and the severity of that sin before a holy God. So listen, the depth and severity of your sin has less to do with what your sin is and more to do with who your sin offends. Less to do with what it is and more to do with who it offends. And so for instance, the other day, I was out in my driveway and there happened to be a neighborhood cat in my driveway. So I kindly took the side of my foot and shooed that cat out of the driveway. Uh, I tried to get it away. I tried to say, hey, get, get. He didn't listen. And so I shooed him away. And my five year old son, Uriah, was standing there and he was greatly offended. Like, dude was irate. He got so ticked off. Ran into mom like, he kicked the cat and he hates him. It just goes nuts, right? So, so he's offended by that. And, and the truth of the matter is, the reason why I did it, I have a 75 pound German Shepherd, Romeo, who would eat that thing. So I was, I was being kind and shooing the cat away but nonetheless my five-year-old was greatly offended and while I don't want to offend him it's not that severe for me to offend my son he's five right now let's change the scenario a little bit what if it's your kid that I kindly shoot away with my foot right like all of a sudden we just up the game a little bit because not only did I shoo away a human being uh, with my foot like I would do an animal but it's also your kid it's personal right Now, let's take it a step further. What if I did this kind shooing away of a police officer? Well, all of a sudden, I'm face down on the hood of a car with handcuffs in my back going to jail, right? Like, that's how the game gets up at that point because it's more so less to do with what I did and more so to do with who I offended. And for us, in our sin, we've offended a holy God. You see, recognizing who your sin offends is far more important than what the actual sin is. In other words... We so often spend our time trying to figure out how bad our sin is, or how te- uh, sorry terrible our sin is, or tolerable our sin is, that we forget the fact that that sin is against God. We forget the fact that it's not a stray cat, but it's a holy, just, good, compassionate, loving, and sometimes wrathful God that we've offended with our sin. The one that created us, the one that literally gave us life, sustains our life, and continues to breathe life into our lungs right now as I speak. That one, that's who we offend, and our sin offends him greatly. That's why the woman in our story is weeping. She she both knows the depths of her sin and how deep it goes, but she also knows how great the Savior is in his acceptance that he's offered her. She recognizes the Savior. She recognizes forgiveness. You see, in the story, we see that she recognizes her sin. We see that Simon recognizes her sin and not his own. And now Simon's wondering and questioning Jesus all of a sudden and thinking to himself, man, can Jesus really understand what's going on in this situation? That this sinful woman would come into this dinner party and ruin everything. Like, am I better than Jesus maybe? Maybe. And Jesus being who he is, I love it. Dude's thinking in his head, is he a prophet? And then Jesus says, well, while, he, while answering his thoughts, Jesus says something to him, right? Like, while he was thinking, we pick it up in verse 41. Jesus answers his thoughts, as a prophet, so to speak, with a parable. He says, a certain money, money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them... Will love him more. And Simon answered, Well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. You see, okay, so let me just kind of articulate what that meant. 500 denarii means 20 months of pay, 20 months' wages, okay? 50 is two months' wages, which is still a lot of money, right? Like two months of your paycheck you owe somebody, that's a lot of money. They both owed a debt, and Jesus is like, okay, so which one of them would love more once that debt's forgiven—the one who was forgiven little, or the one that was forgiven much—and Jesus is do- using this parable to show, to compare and contrast the woman and the Pharisee Simon. And not that she is a bigger sinner than Simon, it's just saying that she understands and has a better idea of how great her sin is and how great it is in perspective of a holy God. She understands how deep her sinfulness is. She hasn't spent her life trying to cover up and try to make people or conceive an idea of how good she really is in comparison to her sin. No, she sees it for what it is. She knows that she's a sin largely against God. She knows the massiveness, the depth of her sin. She knows that when she thinks in her head and hears this story, that the 500 denarii, that's me. That's my sin before holy God. But because of her recognition of her own sin, she also is able to recognize the vastness of her forgiveness. Verse 37 made it clear that she knew. She had a, an understanding that if she were to walk into this dinner, that she would be accepted and forgiven by Jesus. She, ha, she had no doubt in her mind that the mercy of God goes farther than we could ever go, that it goes to the person that is farthest away from Jesus, they can receive that grace. She knows that she has been forgiven so, so much. Now, Simon, on the other hand, well, he views himself as someone that hasn't sinned very much at all, right? Like, he doesn't think he has much debt to pay back, he doesn't recognize the depth of his sin and how much he needs Jesus' forgiveness. He basically thinks that, man, if God needs to forgive me, well, it's probably not that much, right? The woman knows that before a holy God, she's bankrupt, but yet Simon the Pharisee thinks he's okay. He, he thinks that he's okay and that, that he doesn't need that much forgiveness or forgiveness at all, Maybe. So so here's the question, do do you see your need for forgiveness? Do you think that you're you're good with God because you haven't done anything that bad? Are, Are you generally speaking a good person, so you're like, ah, my forgiveness before God's, it's probably not that much. Do you relate to Simon in thinking that whatever debt there is, it's not a whole lot to pay off? So whatever you've been guilty of, whether you think it's minor in comparison to others, the way Jesus paid your debt by dying on the cross shows how deep that sin is. It shows how serious sin your sin is to Jesus and the fact that he would come and lay his own life down to pay that debt. So no matter how big you think your sin is, you have to look at the payment for that sin that shows the depth of how deep it was. To show the severity of it because the severity hung a man who was perfect on the cross for your sin. There's also people in the room whom I know probably think that, man, my sin's just too great for that payment. The debt's farther than 500 denarii. It's, it's far more than that. But here, let me tell you something. Jesus' payment on the cross was sufficient for the greatest of your sins. You can't outsin God's grace on the cross. You just can't do it. Jesus' cross is far bigger than your greatest sin. And the worst thing is not being a big sinner, by the way. The worst thing is not asking for the forgiveness that is offered to you freely by his grace on the cross. Have you ever noticed how how Jesus had a bigger problem with sinners that were rigorously arrogant about their religiosity rather than the immoral people? Like, catch it. Like, he was far more audacious toward those individuals who were the religious folks who were arrogant about how sinful they really are than he was to the immoral people like the prostitute. So just maybe the biggest sin from God's perspective is spiritual pride and not immorality. The only reason why we don't think that sin is very big in our life is because we have this thing in us called comparison, right? Like it just drums up in us no matter where we go. We see the person next to us, I'm pretty... I'm a lot better than that person. They don't, I don't think that way, right? Or I don't see things that way, so I can't possibly be that bad. Like, I'm not Hitler, so I, p- I must be batting a 1,000 at this point, right? Like, that's how we look at it. Here's the problem, though, Christian. The Bible doesn't give us room for that. The Bible actually sets the standard at Jesus Christ himself. Like, that's who we compare ourselves to, and I promise you, you look at him. If I look at him, I fall miserably short from the standard. I, I can't even come close to that particular standard. We have greatly sinned, and he paid the price for that sin. And so if we have faith in Jesus, then we all have been forgiven much, as this story would outline, right? And, and, and catch this. Think about this. This is not simply for the person who haven't, hasn't given their life to Jesus, Christian in the room, person who's given your place your faith in Jesus. If you know that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, does your life, meaning the day to day, reflect the bigness, the vastness, the greatness of what you've been forgiven? Is the bigness of your response in your life correlating to to the to the, the 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 forgiveness that you've been given? Do you tend to think that you have been given forgiven very little? And if so, it goes back to the fact that you don't know who you've offended. Don't ever minimize the wonder of the forgiveness or, or make your mind think that the forgiveness that you've been given is small. Don't ever get used to being forgiven either, by the way. It's not something that you become complacent in. It's something that's ongoing, and we desperately need it daily. And it's always a big deal. Because every single time, it's what put the Savior on the cross. So when we recognize how much we have sinned and then how much we are forgiven, notice what happens. Pick it up in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she... She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, in this story, the woman is the good example. The sinful woman is the one who's the good example because she recognizes the depths of her sin. She recognizes who the Savior is and that he's going to accept her. And then she recognizes how much she's been forgiven and in right response loves much. You see, it's huge because it says that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And so what's her response? Pour out a jar of of perfume and wash the nasty feet of Jesus unashamedly without any care about who's in the room because her affection, her love, is toward the Savior. Because she knows she's been forgiven much, she loves much. She's loving in response to that forgiveness. And Jesus is pointing it out to Simon. He's like, look, Simon, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. She recognizes her sin, and she recognizes how much I've forgiven her. And he's trying to show him, bro, Simon, you love little because you don't think you've been forgiven much. And so, so hear this. The intensity of your love towards Jesus will be in proportion to your understanding of the immensity of his forgiveness. I'm going to say it again. The intensity of your love toward Jesus will be in proportion to your understanding of the immensity of his forgiveness. So do you love Jesus much because you recognize that you've been forgiven much? If you think that your sin is little, that that your forgiveness is little, well guess what? You're going to have a Jesus that's very little. Your need for mercy is going to be little. You're going to see it as little. You're going to see the love and the grace that has been lavished upon you as small. In fact, your love and response to Jesus will be little. Your worship toward God himself will be little. But if you recognize that we are the woman in this story in desperate need of the Savior and and greatly forgiven because of the great amount of sin that we have, well, we're going to love much. And then our love for him will be big as well, as big as our forgiveness will be, and it'll change the way we operate, right? It'll make us more like the Savior. In my prayer, my hope is that we wouldn't walk in the room as people who have got their stuff together, but know the fact that we are a mess. You might have nice clothes on today, but on the inside, you know you have a mess in there that Jesus can only clean. See, we're not well-together people, but the moment we realize that, we remember the vastness of our forgiveness, the beauty of the cross itself, and that response would be to love Jesus, to love others. It'll be generosity with our time, talent, and finances. It will be thinking of others as greater than ourselves, or at least worth more than ourselves. We will follow after Jesus' example and put our lives on the line for other people. We will live a life of delight and thankfulness because we know the depths of how much we've been forgiven. We love Jesus much because he is forgiven much. Let's take a look at the last two verses. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who would even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. It says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So, that, so these final verses basically point out an important question and reality for us, right? The important question is, have you placed your faith in Jesus? And if that's true, are you experiencing the peace that comes with that? Or are you experiencing more conflict, more turmoil in your life or in yourself or in your relationships with others or with God himself? You see, Romans 5.8 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the peace we receive with God, Jesus isn't simply saying that this is some sort of truce, right? Like, okay, I'm waving the white flag, we have an agreement, I'm not mad at you, you're not mad at me anymore, and we just kind of go on our business until I mess up again and God's mad again, right? Like, it's not a truce, it doesn't work that way. No, this isn't a temporary arrangement between us and God. This is an eternal promise of you and me are in right standing and you have my peace in you. So if you place your faith in Jesus, it's once and for all. Whether you sinned a lot yesterday, whether you're going to sin a lot today, and you sin a lot tomorrow, that, that forgiveness is both past, present, and future. That's what the cross paid for. And so the peace with God and the peace that is in you, that's eternal. It's forever. It's a, it's a sure, complete peace that cannot go away. That's the peace that he's referring to. Go in peace. We are completely and utterly made right with God. Not mostly, not kind of, but completely. It's a complete peace, a complete joy, a complete forgiveness, because our debt has been completely canceled. And so the woman in our story, prior to this moment, she didn't have peace. Like, she she had several encounters with men, and each one of them left her less fulfilled, left her more empty and, and in more turmoil, but she meets one man. One man, Jesus Christ, meets him One time, in this scenario here, and he takes her sorrow and turns it to joy. He takes her her dead life and gives her a a living one. He takes her turmoil and he turns it to true and utter peace. And so like the people we are about to hear from in a moment, you too have that opportunity. You too can experience the peace of Jesus Christ if you first acknowledge the fact that you have the depths of sin, a greatness of sin, before a holy and righteous God. If you confess and see the fact that, man, that holy and righteous God sent his son to die for those sins so that you might have a great forgiveness, a great grace that is upon you, all you have to do is receive that. Accept that that is a true and utter reality for you, and then you can have that peace that he says, go in peace. Let the stories today, Christian, man, let the stories today not only just be something that we celebrate, but something that we also reflect on. Let let these reflect on the moment, the time period when it just clicked for you that you've been forgiven much. Let that not be something that you grow tired of like, yeah, I did that, I'm done with it. But let it be something that we reflect on as we see that Jesus is so powerful to take sinners and, make, and then bring them to the Savior so that they might be forgiven. That he might take sinners and show them the love of God and be welcomed into the family. Let these stories be a reflection of that. And before I pray, I want to just talk about baptism real quick. These people are going to share their testimonies, and then they're going to get baptized. Now, know this about baptism. It is a sign and a symbol of an inward reality, which means baptism doesn't save them. It doesn't make them better Christians. It doesn't get them higher uh, levels in heaven. It doesn't make them more coordinated. It doesn't do any of those things for them as they get baptized. All right, I just want to clarify that stuff. And then I, I, I want... I want to set some ground rules for you, okay? Just bear in mind for one moment, clapping, necessary for these moments, okay? Like people are, are getting baptized, we're about to hear stories of changed lives, clapping is necessary. Hooting and hollering and cheering, okay, so yesterday the Husker football team won the game, right? Okay, they won a game, okay? People going from spiritual death to spiritual life, far greater of a, of a cheering section, okay far greater because all of heaven cheers for these folks okay not ninety-five thousand people in a seat like and i'm not saying that husker football is bad i'm just saying this is bigger it's a bigger deal that people are going to get saved so when i talk about cheering i i want to strongly encourage it but i'm just going to say it's a requirement cheering is a requirement in this room we better be uninhibited crazy folks over the fact that jesus christ himself crucified gave people life he has rewritten other people's stories amen let's pray